All right, welcome to another episode of Talk Lex. I'm Scott Peterson. Giovanna's here with me today. Um, we're going to be talking about some uh, legal popery, some stories in the news, talk about what's accurate, what's not accurate, um, and uh, what might be interesting to at least us, hopefully other people as well. Um, so first up, the the celebrity lawsuit that's grabbing headlines everywhere, Gwyneth Paltrow. Why don't you tell us what's happening there? Um, I, I guess we'll come back to her, her the glasses, but why don't you talk about <laughs> what ha- what's happening? Those glasses yeah. are in style. I don't know who some people can pull them off. Yeah, the um, guy who played Jeffrey Dahmer in the Netflix special, but <laughs> all, right, all right, go ahead. So, um, Okay, so Gwyneth Paltrow is currently involved in a trial in Park City, Utah, um, arising from a 2016 collision that she had with, um, for some reason, they feel like it's relevant every time to say this person is a retired orthodontist. I can't, I'm not sure like if that's supposed to elicit sympathy or like not sympathy, like I don't, he doesn't need the money or he does, I don't know. But um, so apparently they got in a collision it at the Deer Valley Ski Resort in Park City. And it seems to be undisputed that this collision happened. Um, he said that she hit him in the back and then sort of skied away and he was injured. Um, somewhere along the line in the lawsuit, she countersued, which in New York we call a counterclaim, and said that he actually hit her. So this is this has gone to trial. I find actually that is like one of the various things we can talk about that seems a little surprising. Yeah, she's she's definitely um, portraying it as a money grab. Um, according to the news sources that I read, he initially was asking for just over three million dollars and has now reduced it to three hundred thousand, which is obviously a lot of money. But for someone like Gwyneth Paltrow, probably isn't. Um, it's surprising in some sense that she hasn't tried to just settle this, and make it go away, but. Um, Apparently she's she's dug in on um, her skiing abilities uh, and her the fact that she didn't cause the crash, right? Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple different things. I think on the first thing, I just you know part of our podcast is kind of trying to explain legal headlines and why you know a news story in one state might not apply to you in another state. Um, so I thought one thing to just point out is that in New York State in a personal injury case, you don't put dollar amounts in a complaint. Um, So you wouldn't sue someone for, you know, $10 million and then have to amend it for another, you know, if if you decide that you are, your case is not in fact worth $10 million. Um, There's other parts of the process where that comes up, but it's not something that you put um, in your complaint. But yeah, I mean, in terms of this actually being um, on trial, I I mean, I certainly respect anyone's ability to sort of defend themselves to the very end. That being said, you know, I guess some people take the any press is good press sort of mentality, but I would think that someone in her position would have probably settled this at some point, even if they felt that they were in the right, um, you know, and potentially for a very insignificant amount of money. I heard like her kids might be called as witnesses. I just feel like these are things that a lot of people would try to avoid. 
um, even if they had to swallow the bitter pill of paying out um, a little bit of a settlement, which in this type of situation is probably coming from an insurance company anyway. Probably. Right? I mean, yeah. even if she, dude, yeah. you know, like your insurance, your homeowner's insurance could kick in in a situation like this, I feel like. Yeah, it, it would it would likely kick in for something like this. Um, it's interesting. Um, you know, I'm an avid skier. So we, you know, and, and we we get a lot of we get calls about people who get injured skiing and and from other recreational sports. And the, the law is actually in New York pretty strict about when you can recover for an injury when you're engaged in a recreational sport like skiing. Um, so if if this were, you know, a situation where the guy fell because he hit a patch of ice while he was skiing down the mountain, uh, the, the law in New York, at least, would say he had assumed that risk by participating in the activity and he wouldn't be able to bring any kind of a lawsuit. Uh, this is a little bit different because he's alleging that another skier was negligent. Um, anyone who's ever been on a ski mountain knows that at any given time, there are a, a handful of people flying around the mountain who could easily take somebody out and do. It happens all the time. I got hit when I was a kid. Um, so it's 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 kind of interesting um, from, from that perspective. Yeah. So New York has um, an actual a statute about the inherent risks of skiing. And one of them that is specifically listed out um, in the statute as a recognized risk of skiing is other people using the facility. So I think that in a situation like this, where as far as I can tell, all he's alleging is she was skiing, she ran into me, I got hurt. Um, I don't think he's doing the ski mountain, which I, I do not think that he would have been able to do successfully um, in New York as in particular, but even against the other skier, you know, the cases that we see in New York that are successful to the point of at least, you know, they're not getting dismissed outright would be if the other skier was doing something totally outrageous. I mean, you know that sometimes there are situations where another skier is, um, either skiing totally outside of their ability um, on, you know, a, a, I'm not a skier. What is it called? A run? A run. <laughs> that they have no business being on or they're just being dangerous in general. Then you might have a situation where you could sue the skier as opposed to ski mountain. But in this situation, I mean, I just don't see anything unless it's different in Utah, which I have to think that in Utah, they would be protecting the skiers and the ski mountains even more so than in New York. Um, I just don't see there being liability. I'm surprised it's made it all the way to trial because I would have thought the case would have been dismissed somewhere along the way under this kind of assumption of risk doctrine because, I mean my one and only ski lesson was coincidentally in park city. And I very easily could have I, like I, I've been biting my tongue down and I don't know that they would have been able to sue me because there's beginners on the mountain and, you know, like you might fall and somebody might trip over you. And, you know, they ha there has to be some legal protection for that. Cause that probably happens like a hundred times a day. I've been biting my tongue because thinking about you skiing in park city and how this could have been <laughs> this could have been us could have been me hitting Gwyneth very Patrick. easily could have hit like somebody coming down the, yeah very well you could have very easily hit somebody coming down the the bunny hill right I think this was on a beginner slope um, um it's actually shocking that um I didn't yeah 
yeah. <laughs> it's, it's shocking that I didn't cause like a 400 person pileup. Yeah. I'm no, not knocking your skiing ability, but yeah, um, it is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this, you know, this, this, but the coverage of this also, I think is interesting. Um, and not surprising, uh, you know, the internet is f full of memes and comments about how the first couple of days of trial, she came in dressed like exactly like you would expect someone who was on trial for a skiing accident to be dressed with like a like a ski sweater and these fancy uh, designer glasses. And um, and now she's reverted to, I think, a more sort of like business attire, probably um, having heard some of the, the comments but it you know it i thought it was interesting because when we have clients you know and we have trials one of the things you always talk about is how you're going to present to a jury um and obviously when you're dealing with a celebrity all bets are off but even with a regular you know regular client you've got to be very cautious about appearing in court as the type of person who either isn't taking this seriously or you know, thinks this is some kind of a fashion uh, opportunity or, um, you know, tells the jury that you're someone who they're going to have no problem, you know, uh, awarding damages against. So I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I, I like Gwyneth Paltrow. I find her to be like a little kooky, but I kind of like appreciate her. That being said, she's sort of a glutton for punishment. She was in the news the same week a lot by talking about her wellness regimen, which I think to most people sounded like starvation. Um, so she was already getting trashed about that and had to like issue an explanation. And then this, and I mean, it's kind of like you could chuckle a little bit when you see her sort of rolling in to court with like her big furry sweater on and stuff. But like, we have those conversations with our clients about how are we going to address when we go to court? How are we going to address in the deposition? How are we going to address in your mediation? Um, so I was actually surprised that she wasn't, you know, a little bit more professionally um, presented, um, even though I'm sure her sweater was very fabulous. But um, I, but I also it. thought, oh, no, do you want to say something else about Gwyneth Paltrow's yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I once had a trial when I was younger um, and the other lawyer got dropped off in front of the courthouse every day in a limo. <laughs> yeah, like, fun. I feel like people don't like that. No, he lost. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and maybe- Yeah, I mean, this is not, now. you know, there's a jury, this is a jury trial and this is not the time to, you know, you, these are just regular people. Um, but I also thought it was worth pointing out that just in terms of people managing their expectations in a lawsuit, I think sometimes people don't realize, um, you know, what a slog this can sometimes be. And this is an accident that happened in 2016. Um, and they're, you know, just going to trial now in 2023. It's, that's, I mean, I think that's, that's long in general, but I mean, not necessarily beyond the realm of possibility. Um, no, I mean, pretty intense period of time to hash this out. Yeah, typically we tell clients the the process lasts from nine to eighteen months, but it definitely we've definitely had cases that have gone a couple of years, um, but seven years is pretty pretty long. Um, just wanted to make one correction: he is a seventy six year old retired optometrist. Not, oh, optometrist. Yeah, you might have braces on the mind because of our sorry. daughter, but um, uh, uh, yeah. So, 
anyway, uh, she's maybe going to testify today. I don't know. It'll be interesting. If anything breaking happens, we'll be sure to update our listeners who I'm sure will be, you know, sitting on, sitting on their hands because they can't, can't help themselves, but be excited to wait. So, um, anything else on this one? I don't think so. All right. Um, interesting story. I thought, I thought this was more interesting. Um, there's a story out of Stanford Law School uh, where this the school has a Federalist Society, which is a common organization on college and graduate school campuses, which is predominantly conservative. Um, and, and the society invited a judge from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, who was appointed by President Trump, to visit and come give a speech, Judge Stuart Kyle Duncan. Um, just by way of background uh, for our, our listeners, the circuit courts of appeals are the second highest level federal courts under the Supreme Court. So these judges are pretty serious people. They are always well-educated. They typically have very, um, uh, very, I'm, I'm drawing a Illustrious. Illustrious <laughs> careers uh, and, and, and pedigrees. And they've most of them clerk for Supreme Court judges or other circuit court judges. So they're 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 very respected as a general rule and typically very, very smart. And so um, this particular judge has um, a history of conservative opinions. He's a conservative judge. And uh, he came to speak with the Federalist Society and there were protests going on outside. Uh, and then while he was giving his speech, there were very sort of loud, boisterous, um, interruptive uh, protests, and he couldn't get his speech through. And at one point, apparently, he engaged in a back and forth with some of the protesters, uh, and the whole thing kind of blew up. Um, during the course of it, the uh, the moderator, who I believe was um, a another professor at the law school, uh, stood up and instead of trying to tamp things down, said, "For many people here, your work has caused harm." Uh, which I think just in further inflamed the situation. Um, in any event, that admitted, that teacher uh, has been put on leave, and the dean of the law school issued a long 10-page letter, open letter to the Stanford Law School community, uh, basically apologizing to the judge and defending their position and apologizing to the judge and, and talking extensively about the importance of the ability to have these discussions on a, on a campus and, and a, on a law school campus in particular. Um, and we'll kind of dive into that, but it's, it's really set off like a firestorm. These, this, this incident um, in terms of like the free speech issue and the, the idea of tolerance of people who has, whose opinions are different than those that you might think, you know, are correct. Thoughts. Yeah. I mean, this kind of reminded me and I looked it up. So I'm just going to like, read it because for some reason this is what kind of popped into my mind immediately um a ruth bader ginsburg quote where she says fight for the things that you care about but do it in a way that will lead others to join you i think that sometimes um you know and i respect students and young people and their right to protest and i think that's really important and i think our country has a very rich history of people doing that and it being kind of like an agent for change, um, probably most recently in, in kind of the gun violence context also. 
Um, so that's not to take anything away from that. That being said, um, I think that maybe sometimes there can be a little bit of a, I don't know if you want to call it immaturity or what, about how people might go about um, expressing sort of their dissent. And, and when they take that too far, it makes it very easy for them to become the bad guys. Um, and I just don't think you're helping your cause when you do that. And, and one thing that I, I wanted to mention that, that you had said is that um, some of these students, because this is the type of thing that I think kind of like takes you over to the, over the line, um, you know, they were making, were they making rape threats against the judge's daughter? Well, on, on the or, way in, so he, he said that he heard some of them saying, you know, we hope your daughter gets raped because he had issued um, decisions that were uh, anti-abortion um, and those sorts of things. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's tough because I do think that judges, um, have obviously we know this probably you know mostly in the news now in the abortion context have the ability to do real actual harm to people um so i can understand sort of the passion that people would have against someone whose decisions they might perceive to have translated into actual harm as opposed to some more sort of legal scholarly type of thing um, that being said, again, I mean, to me, something like that kind of takes you over the line. I also think that you, as, as someone who is in law school and, and going to be a lawyer and going to be in a profession, um, that's a little bit more stodgy sometimes that, you know, you're a professional and professionals don't really well, I, I don't know, although everyone says we have like a breakdown of civil discourse. I mean, when they had the State of the Union, there's people shouting and heckling and acting like complete, you know, disrespectful, you know, people. So it's kind of hard because, you know, I think from how we uh, were sort of brought up, like you would not do that. You know, if you are in extreme disagreement with someone, you still would not be heckling them from the audience or shouting and, and threatening people in a professional environment. You know, unfortunately, that's something that people observe on a regular basis from, you know, elected officials and stuff like that. I don't know if that's how that translates into people's day-to-day -day life, but I just thought it was ironic. Like lawyers, you know, part of being a lawyer is being able to argue both sides of something. And no matter how passionately you feel about your side of it, I think in that context, you kind of have to allow the other person to speak. Well, I think, I think in the, the, the Dean of Law School spoke about this in her letter. I think, you know, the idea that as, as future lawyers, you think that the best approach to achieving change or uh, getting your point across to an adversary is by screaming at them and interrupting them is, is like completely counter into or counterproductive and and goes against the entire way the system is designed to work. Um, you know, our whole job is built around using facts to convince someone who may agree with you that your position is the correct one. Um, and you know, like you, to your point, and, you know, we we are less in this position now than we were when we were younger lawyers. But when you come out of law school and you're working for a law firm, if that's what you choose to do, you know, you you will find yourself arguing positions that you don't personally agree with. Um, and, and, 
your job and your ethical obligation to your clients if you've decided to do that is to use the facts the best way you can with the argument so uh it's not a scenario at least at that point where you know you just you can just say anyone who disagrees with me is a, is is an idiot this this person is obviously not an idiot and i while i personally disagree with most of his 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 positions um there are lots of people who don't disagree with him and so you know kicking and screaming and threatening and um making these you know ridiculous um comments about his daughters isn't going to get anybody anywhere you know um I think, and I think that that's kind of what the Dean was getting at is that this is not helping to, you know, move any conversation forward. This is the problem, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene should not be our benchmark for civility, right? Um, you know, but, and certainly that's not how it should be translated to one of the best law schools in the country. I thought it was interesting because there's this whole debate about First Amendment protections and Stanford's a private school. So as a general rule, they wouldn't actually be subject to the First Amendment. But apparently, California has a law that they're um, a state law that says that um, private schools in this thing, there is actually some, they have to extend some element of First Amendment rights to free speech on campus. Um, they, yeah, and I think for the professor um, that got suspended, that would come up as well, not just. Um, necessarily under the California law, but federal law will protect um, some First Amendment um, rights of professors in colleges that are private but receive federal funding, which I assume is probably all of them. Um, so there could be some protection there for that professor. Um, you know, First Amendment protection in general in an employment context, very limited. Um, but some professors are, you know, successful um, in that situation. But, you know, I think ultimately, you know, I, I'm I'm on board with protesting. I'm on board with, you know, students expressing to their school what types of guests that they want to have and that they don't want to have or that they think are appropriate to have, you know, speaking on their campus or not. Um, I don't think that means that just because you ask for it and just because you advocate for it, you receive it. Because I think part of, um, you know, higher education would be having those differing points of views. And, you know, is there a situation where maybe a particular person, um, their speech might go into more of like a hate speech category where that person has no business being given a platform at your school? I think there's probably definitely situations where that happens a federal court of appeals judge is probably not quite there. Um, you know, it just, you could have a extreme disagreement with every word that comes out of that person's mouth, but that doesn't mean that it's, you know, inappropriate for a, a federal court of appeals judge to come and speak at a law school. Yeah. And apparently he speaks at a lot of law schools also. So it's just, you know, it's interesting. And, and, you know, I know you, you sort of mentioned it. There's there's been a number of speakers, high profile people over the last few years. I think of that guy Jordan Peterson as one of them. Um, who another is, Peterson? Yeah, um, Peterson. another Peterson. Depending on where you stand, can is not helping the name. Although a lot of people support him, um, but I think there was some pushback when he was speaking on some college campuses because he had used some inflammatory comments. But you know, I I think this this a lot of this goes to the the sort of problem that I don't know if it's social media or if it's just we've always been like this it's like the soundbite 
generation or the soundbite approach to things where we we take one thing that somebody said and we can put it in whatever context we want and and make determinations about everything about that person based on that and that's that's risky and that's the whole point of having allowing you know these open discussions and allowing people to challenge them but in a way that's you know somewhat respectful of the process i think that's how you move the conversation forward not by just you know uh, saying we don't like any speakers that the Federalist Society is going to have, so we don't think they should be allowed to have any. I mean, that's that's not the appropriate response, I don't think. Any other thoughts on this one? No, but I've been keeping an eye on what happens with the professor because I'm interested um, to see what happens with sort of her employment. I don't know exactly, you know, what she said um, that caused them to suspend her um you know maybe she went over the top or something but i i was a little bit surprised um you know by that um i think it's just uh, according to the new york times article when he when when the judge asked stanford administrators to calm the crowd the associate dean for diversity equity and inclusion walked to the lectern and instead began her remarks by criticizing him saying for many people here your work has caused harm um and she's been placed on leave that's uh, <laughs> i don't know about oh, that she said that about the judge yeah he suspended yeah. her yeah i mean yeah that's tough i mean i think you know she probably in her role so that's a, that's like a catch-22 role because her job is to protect the students um and make them feel uh you know, that they're in a safe space, which I'm sure is a conversation for other people that are not going to like the sound of that. But her job, you know, is to make sure that the students feel, uh, you know, that they're in a, a comfortable zone. So if she felt that she had to couch her comments in, you know, explaining to him, this is where these people are coming from, yet everybody sit down and be quiet. Um, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's just another um, media firestorm. So I thought I just I thought it was an interesting story. Um, I'm not sure how it goes. There's a lot of commentary around it. Um, if anyone wants to read about it, but I think much of the legal profession has sort of taken the position that, you know, this is not how, this is not how we should behave. We should be having you know, intelligent, thoughtful de debates rather than, you know, trying to just prevent somebody from having the conversation at all. Um, that's most. Yeah. And I, I think that that context is important because you are a law school and you're sort of training people, not only, you know, in the sort of nitty gritty of the law, but also how to go out into the world and present yourselves. And, and anybody who does probably any type of law, but I mean, we do litigation. I, you literally have to sit there in like an internal murderous rage, listening to somebody say, you know, things that you disagree with to the extreme. And then you have to calmly and respectfully and nicely present the reasons why every single thing that just came out of their mouth was wrong. It's like my cousin Vinny. You can't just get up and say everything that guy just said is bullshit, even though most of the time you, not most of the time, a lot of the time you want to say that. Like, yeah, like you have to say respectfully, Your Honor. You disagree. I disagree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's an interesting one. So um, 
you know, we, we, we often talk about misleading headlines. Um, you kind of touched on this earlier, but I read a couple of headlines this week about lawsuits uh, and, and dollars attached to them saying, you know, there was a $68 million lawsuit filed by a former uh, inmate at a Nassau County correctional facility. And then you have the the Dominion case, the voting machines case. Whenever you read about that, they refer to it as a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. Um, I thought it would just be worthwhile to kind of touch on that quickly because, you know, people reading those headlines or seeing it on, on the news, you know, make assumptions about the case based upon the numbers. Uh, and you talked earlier about the fact that in New York, most of the time, you don't even put the numbers in the complaint. But, um, you know, it's important for people to understand that just because there's a number that, you know, that doesn't mean anything at the outset of a lawsuit. It means it's what one party thinks the case might be worth. But, there's a process um, to get to that point. And typically it's a jury or a judge who makes the determination of what the actual damages are if you're able to prove liability. Uh, so the numbers that you see in the news are often really not tied to anything. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, and I think it's always just a little bit of a you know, good thing to recognize that a lot of times when lawsuits are in the news, um, you never really, you know, maybe something big like that Dominion case, but in a lot of cases, you never really know exactly how they resolve um, because they just kind of fall off of the radar. So I feel like we talked about that just between the two of us recently about, um, you know, press releases at the beginning of lawsuits and things like that. And, you know, sometimes, um, those might get a lot of traction if, if something is more, you know, newsworthy or whatever, um, and then they can stick out in people's minds. But the problem is 90% of the time, especially on a more local level, you have no idea how that case resolved. You know, that case that got put in the newspaper because, you know, the attorney thought it was, um, you know, either super newsworthy or, or did it kind of as a marketing tool for themselves. Um, that case could get dismissed. It could settle for like $5. You know, we just, you just don't know. Um, so it's it's always hard to see legal stuff reported in the news because a lot of it is newsworthy, but it's most of it is usually out of context. And, you know, you just a lot of times you just don't know how it even shook out in the end. But you yeah, have that very, initial headline kind of in the back of your mind. Yeah, and it's very rare that the, that there's a follow up as to the resolution, like almost never, unless it's yeah. a big trigger. So right. just a tip. Um, Anything else? No. No. All right. Okay. Uh, we'll wrap it for this week. Um, if there's any questions, reach out to us. Uh, hit us up on uh, social media at TalkLex on Instagram or at Dorazio Peterson. Um, questions, give us a call. Reach out to us. We're happy to answer them. Otherwise, we will be back again soon uh, with another episode. And thanks for listening.